long ago. And in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you're not here for part one of this message, um, we talked about the glory of God. And I will tell you, with a concept as significant and as big as the glory of God, it's, it's a difficult time for any one of us to try to wrap our minds around. And so it feels a little bit inadequate to try to even use language to describe God's glory. And it feels even more impossible to review describing God's glory. But we're going to try to do that here in just a second. And if nothing else, I would love for you to come back with us to the scene of where we experience God's glory in a brand new way. Referred to as the transfiguration story of Jesus. It was one evening, Jesus took a couple of his disciples, James, his younger brother John, and their friend Peter, up on a high mountain. And the disciples were kind of half asleep as Jesus was praying until something very unique happened. His face started to change physically, to become bright his whole body becoming bright, even his clothes. Changing, as some translations say, turning as white as lightning. And the disciples are wiping their eyes and they're trying to look at Jesus in a a brand new way that they've never seen before. And as they look up, they notice that two men had also appeared with them. And they were talking with Jesus about what was soon to happen, this moment that we'll actually celebrate next week, Next week, Jesus' exodus from earth, His departure. And somewhere in the conversation, James and John and Peter, they realize these aren't just two men. This is Moses and Elijah. Two of the prophets which cast the longest shadow on the history of the Israelites, of God's people. They're, they're there talking with Jesus. can't imagine what that experience would have been like for these you know, three guys who grew up hearing these stories far more than we talk about them today. And at the end of their conversation, Moses and Elijah were turning to go, and Peter speaks up because he didn't know what to say, and he says, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Uh, If it pleases you, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And as he's saying this, a very bright cloud appears above them, overshadowing them, and begins to descend upon them. And if the disciples weren't scared up to this point, now they're terrified. As they hear the voice that's unlike any other voice in the whole universe, the voice of the Heavenly Father, the Almighty Creator. And He says, This is My Son, whom I love, listen to him. 
Peter, be quiet. Listen to him. Peter, it's not your way. Obey him. Do what he says. And we get to see this image of glory in a way that we've not seen it before at the Transfiguration. And I just really appreciate the artists who have attempted to sketch, paint, draw, whatever their skills are, this scene as we see Jesus radiating the glory of God. And as the Hebrew author said, we read just a minute ago, He is the radiance of the glory of God. And we see this in a whole new way. And yet, unfortunately, the word glory is just so overused, maybe underused, diluted at, you know, at best. And sometimes it doesn't mean something very nice. And so we actually tried to walk through the Scriptures last week and look at what the glory of God is. And that it's not something we can give Him. It is something that He is. The Apostle Paul refers to it as an unapproachable light. Brilliant. You can't look upon it. And, and yet, it, it's something that can only be understood by experience. And that's where I just feel like even a message on the glory of God, talking about it, we could study it for a long time. But unless you've experienced it, we don't know what it is. And yet, it's so significant that God conceals it from us for our sake. And also because it's so significant and because He needs to conceal it, He tries to reveal it in doses that we can handle through His creation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And it's what He is so very passionate about. The Lord is passionate about us seeing His glory. And so we define the glory of God in this way. Again, a feeble definition, but maybe something that you can take with you and the Lord can begin to work on you know, from now on when you read about the glory of God. This is, this is how we define it. The glory of God is His ultimate sovereignty. There's no one higher. And it's His infinite holiness. It's, it's too close. We can't even come up to the mountain. We can't even approach the mountain. We can't touch this Ark of the Covenant, these symbols that have been given to us throughout history, we can't come near them because He's infinitely holy and we are not. And this sovereignty and this holiness, concepts that you know, we have a hard time with anyway, He displays them wondrously in a very physical form. Jesus. He's displaying it through His Son in a very physical form, something that we can actually follow and really to understand much better than a mountain or much better than a, a gold box or a temple or tabernacle or whatever other symbols He's given us all along. He gives us a man. Heaven and earth coming together. And the significance, the significance of understanding the glory of God is that one day, you and I, are going to present ourselves before the Father. And we are going to look on His glory in its fullness. And it will either be the most beautiful sight you've ever seen for those who are hidden in Christ, clothed in His righteousness, or 
it will be the most terrible sight because you will be fully exposed to the true and perfect beauty of the glory of God in all its fullness. And I pray, I pray, really, if you tune out to anything else that I say today, I hope that you'll at least walk away with that, knowing that the truth is that one day you will present yourself before the glory of God. And that the pathway to being clothed in His righteousness is through His Son, Jesus. We could probably end right there. And yet the path is sometimes one that we just don't want to take. So, come back to me, with me, to the scene of the transfiguration. The cloud lifts, and as the cloud lifts, Moses and Elijah are also gone. And it says that the disciples only saw Jesus. And then something a little bit strange you know, happens, or at least the conversation between Jesus and his disciples is kind of strange, and that's where I want to pick up today. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus says to his disciples, he said, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, I don't know if that hits you in a strange way or not, but I cannot, I cannot believe being, you know, James, John, Peter, Seeing that and thinking, what? When, when can I talk about it? When are we going to have? When are we going to talk about what just happened? And it, you almost get the sense reading it that Jesus said, "Hey, let's don't talk about that. All right, not until I'm raised from the dead." And then it's like he turns and starts walking, and you get the sense that the disciples don't even want to ask him, like, "Well, can the four of us talk about it?" What's amazing, they responded in obedience. It says, so they kept the matter to themselves. And I can't imagine what that would have been like, you know, getting down the next day and they're talking about it and, you know, the three of them, it's hush-hush. You know, what do you think? You know, what do you think about this? Because it says that they often asked each other what rising from the dead might mean. They just had this big experience where they heard the voice of God, they saw Jesus lit up brighter than anything that's ever been, you know, bright before. And he says, don't talk about it until I'm raised from the dead. And that's the part that hangs with them, is the rising from the dead. And on one hand, I'm like, guys, come on, you've been with Jesus for how long now? You know, the greatest teacher that's ever walked the face of the earth, he's been telling you all along that he's going to suffer He's going to be raised up, and you don't get it? I mean, come on. Guys, you just saw Moses and Elijah raised up, and you don't know what rising from the dead might mean? You know, and then on the other side of that, I still think that this is the problem we're having today. It's that we don't fully understand what rising from the dead might mean. Now, we all want to rise from the dead, right? We all want to experience life like we've never experienced it before. True life. 
And I'll tell you, I don't really want to wait until I'm physically dead to experience that. And I'm thankful that Jesus said we don't have to. And that the kingdom of God is at hand and that we can begin to enter it right now through repentance and changing our direction. But see, here's the problem, right? We all want to rise from the dead, right? But rising requires dying. And I don't really want to die. You know, and, and I know some of you are probably saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus die so we don't have to? Right? Didn't Jesus die so we don't have to die? And that's said a lot, and I think it's said a lot because it sounds like it's true. And, and it's almost true. But there's a little variation here. Jesus didn't die so we didn't have to. He died so that we could be raised up with him. And that's a very significant difference right there. Jesus did not die so you don't have to. He died knowing that you would die and that you too could be raised up. But I don't really want to die. Physically, we know we're all going to die, right? I mean, it's just a fact of life. You learn it early on. But a spiritual death, a dying so that we can be raised up in this life, it's like a dying before we die. Thinking about the mountain of transfiguration, there is the going up, the ascending to the knowledge of and the understanding, at least partially, of the glory of God. And you would kind of think that at that moment of coming to that knowledge and that understanding of the glory of God, that He would want to keep you and I sitting right up there on that mountain, ever in awe of His glory. And yet, the pathway to being clothed in Christ, the pathway is actually by going down the mountain. It is the dying before we die. And that type of death requires an enormous amount of courage. The descent down the mountain requires courage. And so if you want to experience life in this life, in the one that you're living, you have to shed your life and die so that you can be given a new one. And so today, I want to talk to you about four underlying decisions in your decision to die before you die. You with me? There's four underlying decisions to experiencing life through death. And I want to talk to you about those four decisions with the remaining time that we have. The descent requires, and this is the first decision you're going to have to make, the courage to give. Now, I'm not just talking about money here. You know, giving money really is pretty easy. It's, it's almost a transaction. It's what, it's what we use to at one, one point learn what giving of our lives is actually like. Because the going down the mountain, the path of the cross, the denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Him, is an unloading process. 
Now, I know many of our kids are out today, but I want you to raise your hand if you're in 6th, 7th, or 8th grade. I want to see where you are. Okay, awesome. 6th, 7th, or 8th grade. You are in a phase of your life where you're about to learn a lot more about the world than I wish you had to learn. You're going to get to high school, and you're going to start to grow up, and things are going to change, and it's going to feel really weird. It probably is already starting to feel a little weird for you in middle school. What an awkward age. I'm sorry you're all really great people, but you're a little bit awkward right now. (laughs) But you're going to learn a lesson from the world that life is all about acquiring. And you're going to go and you're going to acquire an education and you're going to go and you're going to acquire all these different experiences that are going to prepare you for your job. And your job's going to be about acquiring stuff, you know, so that one day if you've acquired enough stuff, you actually don't have to work and you can enjoy the last few years of your life because you've acquired enough. But the spiritual descent, the, the pathway down the mountain is an unloading process. And if you can get that early on, that true life is not in acquiring, it's in unloading. You will begin to live long before you die. Now, this may sound a little bit morbid, but I like a good funeral. I really do. Because at a good funeral, and here's, here's a picture for you. This, this, is, uh, this is me with some of my cousins, pallbearers at my grandfather's funeral you know, almost a year ago. And I'll tell you, at a good funeral, you get to see people come together. It doesn't matter how many, but people come together and they talk about how much the person who's laying there gave their life away. And I'll tell you, my grandfather was a big man, but that box was light because he had given so much of his life away. He had been descending down the mountain experiencing true life long before he was ever in this state. But I'll tell you also, I've been to an awful funeral. When I was in high school, senior in high school, uh, one of my teachers got a call uh, from a funeral home. He was connected with a guy at the funeral home. And uh, apparently a man in in the community uh, was not a homeless man. It was actually... You know, from my understanding, it was actually a fairly wealthy man, had passed away, and no one was coming to his funeral. And so the the funeral home called my teacher because of their connection and you know, his influence and asked him to come say a few words. I mean, what do you say at a funeral about someone you don't know and who doesn't have anyone else to show up? And so he actually took our whole class over there. And we, you know, seniors in high school are walking in this little funeral home. There was probably 30 of us. And uh, my teacher was, was talking uh, about death, the significance of it. But you know what just really stood out to me? Was that this man had died a biological death, you know, just a couple days before we showed up. But the relational death had happened many years before totally disconnected. And at some point, I I pray that he knew the glory of God. I pray that he knew his sovereignty, he knew his holiness, and he knew that Jesus was the only way. I pray that that man knew that. And I'm not trying to pass judgment saying that he didn't. But that man had acquired and not given. 
and he didn't have the courage to come down the mountain. You find your life when you give it away. Look up Matthew 16.25 sometimes. You find your life. You find new life in the death of giving away. And you have to have the courage to give. Here's the second one. You have to have the courage to go. Now back up with me for a minute to the transfiguration story. And I want to think about excuse me, this idea of why would you not, if you're Jesus and all the other disciples, why would you not say, and now you know, you know, you're Jesus, now you know who I am, you've seen me in my glory, now go get three more disciples and bring them back up here so I can show them. No, bring all of them. In fact, everyone who's near, go bring them and bring them up on the mountain. I'm going to reveal myself to the whole world. We're just going to stand in line from now until the end of time just so people can see me in my glory right now and come to that. Why would you not do that? I mean, surely it led them to a place of worship that was unlike any we've probably experienced in this room. Maybe, I I don't know. You may have experienced something different, but you know, seeing Jesus in His glory, I can't imagine but that would do anything but just lead you to worship. Now, I know some of you, you know, are probably acting like you're looking, you know, at your Bible after. You're really looking at the, the leaderboard of the Masters right now. And so I want to give you, you know, a golf analogy, okay? And if it doesn't do anything for you, that's fine. But recently, I got to see um, Tiger Woods play golf. Recently, meaning just a couple days ago. So I'll just rub it in. It was awesome. Now, Tiger, if you've never heard of him before, uh, that's totally fine. Um, he's one of the greatest golfers that ever played the game. We'll find out you know, how great he is uh, in the coming years of you know, how long he's able to continue playing. But he's definitely a great golfer. Now, you get a sense with Tiger, unlike anyone else out there, you know, even at the Masters where everybody's great, you get a sense of what it was like for Jesus you know, walking around with crowds of people following you, hoping you're going to do something miraculous. I mean, you really get that sense. And he's moving from one hole to the next tee. People are crowded around. They're trying to high-five him. They're crowding around him because they want to see him do something really incredible. Now, being part of that crowd, imagine if, if Tiger somehow had some compassion on all the terrible golfers watching him. And he picked me out of the crowd, and he said, um, I want to teach you how to play golf. And I, I can tell there's a lot of people here who like golf and, and they're probably not very good. And so I don't want you to go teach them, right? So we're going to get together once a week and I'm going to teach you to play. Now imagine this. I'm, I'm, I can guarantee this would happen the first time. I would get there and there would be a little bit of, you know, starstruck. I'm talking with Tiger. He's teaching me how to swing a club. You know, hopefully he can help. And I am... I am in awe of him. And what if I just started, Tiger, you are just so good. You are so awesome at golf. I mean, that shot you hit on nine, you know, a couple days ago, was just insane. You're just such a good golfer. And he's like, yeah, well, thank, you know, that's great. Well, let me teach you how to play. And I'm just like, no, 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 really. I don't, just one more minute. You are awesome at golf. I don't know if you, how well you know that. You're great. And if every week I went away and came back, and Tiger's trying to teach me how to golf, and I'm just like, Tiger, you are great. You are awesome. At some point, he's going to snap. 
And I know that God is far more patient than Tiger Woods. But at some point, Houston, I gave you a responsibility. I'm trying to teach you something. Listen. You have a responsibility, not just to yourself, but to go down the mountain and communicate that to everyone else. Here's something for you to know, okay? I want you to know this. You worshiping God is not God's end goal for you. And in the church, we, we kind of walk a tight balance between that because you know, we want to create these experiences that lead you to worship and that lead you to a curiosity about God, a wonder about God that you've never, that you've never felt before. And we do that collectively. But worshiping God is not God's end goal for you. Relationship is. If God was just trying to bring the world to worship Him, He would have lined people up from then, you know, until the end of time, saying, come up, all right, the next group, let's see them, cloud comes down, listen to Him, you know, move on, next group. Relationship is His end goal for you, and you will not be able to stand before the glory of God unless you walk down the mountain with Jesus. Knowing you're walking to your own death, which is the pathway to your new life. Courage to go. Now, the courage to go to follow Jesus is going to take you to some uncomfortable places. In fact, Jesus begins His teaching ministry somewhere around you know, Matthew 5. He ends it both with the same thing, is that persecution will come. And so the next decision that you're going to have to make is the courage to stay. To have the courage to stay when you get to a place that you don't feel like you can handle on your own and that it's just really uncomfortable to say the least. Now, you could say in this country we've been fortunate on one hand to not experience a lot of the persecution that we read about in the Bible. In fact, we've really not had to endure the persecution that is in the other parts of the world today, that's happening now. And on one hand, you could say that we're fortunate. On the other hand, you could say, yeah, but, but that is the pathway to life. I'm convinced that in our lifetime, if you're 50-ish and younger, we're going to see a different type of persecution in this country than we've ever seen before. I'm convinced of that. And I want to be prepared for that. And I want you to be prepared for that. But even if you don't experience that, persecution is somewhere on the spectrum from embarrassing to um, your, your physical life being taken from you. It's somewhere on that spectrum. And very likely for most of the people in this room listening, it's going to be on the spectrum of embarrassing to humiliating, you know, and might start to get into some psychological, you know, verbal uh, abuse. And we practice our, our courage to stay in our jobs, in our marriages, with our kids, even in our churches. Because I, I can assure you of this, 
you are going to be presented with an opportunity at some point that's going to be better for you to walk away, to leave, to remove yourself. It's going to be better for you to walk away in the short term than to stay. It will be. Some of you may have already been there in that place where it it would be better for you in the short term to walk away, and yet I'm begging you to stay, to work it out, Because that is when you begin to practice your courage of staying and dying before you die. And it is the pathway to life. If you've ever been into a jewelry store and you're looking at diamonds or whatever you're looking at, uh, the jewelers are interesting. It's not like I go into jewelry stores a lot. I've been in once before. I bought a a, a ring for my wife. Um, And the jewelers are, are interesting in that how much they care about what's on display. In fact, uh, if you go in to buy, let's say, a diamond, they will take these tweezers very carefully and they will pick up the diamond and then they will come and they will set it against a very black background to show you. And then to make it even better, they will shine light down on top of that beautiful diamond and it will begin to radiate light all around the darkness. Descending down the mountain is just like that. It's Jesus who is moving you into a place of darkness so that He can shine light down upon you to radiate out into the darkness. And your ability to enjoy true life in this life, to die before you die, is your ability to have the courage to stay in those times. And there is only one place that you can find that courage. And it happens to be, it happens to be in the very last words that Jesus ever spoke while He was on earth. He's about to send off His little group and ascend. And as they're watching, you know, His feet touch the ground for the last time, He says, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Whatever dark background you find yourself in, to find the courage to stay. It's not just about you. The last decision that you have to make, and in some ways this one is much harder than persecution, because at least in persecution you know that you know, you have been presented, you know, with this opportunity to shine out the light of Jesus. And yet, there's much of our life that, that doesn't really feel like that. In fact, there's a lot of it, it just feels like, I don't even know what's going on. I, wh- like, why did cancer just come out of nowhere? Why did my son just have a brain tumor out of nowhere? You could go through the list. Why did I get laid off? You could go through all the lists of these, you know, very strange things. And so I, the last decision that you're going to have to make to be able to fully enjoy life on this earth where you will have trouble is to make the decision to have the courage to not know. The 
there was a point in Moses' ministry that was the lowest point in his life. We referenced it last week, and so I want to tell you a little bit more about it now. He's, he's seen the burning bush. He's overcome his you know, personal issues with being a leader, and he's gone back to Egypt, and through him and his brother, you know, God's performed all these miracles. He's led the people out. He's parted a Red Sea. Um, waters come from a rock. He's ascended on the mountain to meet God for the first time. He's performed this wedding ceremony between God and his people. I mean, up until this point, God has been, you know, just so good to the people. And yet they've responded in a way that, you know, you, many of you probably heard from the time you were little, you know, they needed some, they needed a symbol to go before them that this was the God, this little golden calf. This, this was the God that brought us out. And God's furious. Moses is like broken. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses responds differently than I would have thought. And he says, Lord, show me now your glory. God had given them the opportunity to go on to the promised land and have everything done, an angel gone before them, clear everybody out, and they would have had this land, but God wasn't going to go with them. Or they could go down the path of going with God and have to, to fight. And it's strange because Moses is like, no, 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 I'm not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere without you. In fact, he almost demands, show me now your glory. And God says, I can't show you my glory. I can't show you my face. You, you couldn't see it and live. But I'll let my glory pass before you. And when it passes by, I will put you in a cleft of a rock. He says, then I will remove my hand from you. I'll cover you with my hand. I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. This is kind of an interesting, you know, thought to be able to see the back of God. I think what he's really saying is when my glory passes by, you'll be able to see the effects of where my glory has been. You can't see my face. You can't see my glory, but you can see where my glory has been. I couldn't find, you know, a great picture of Moses. I guess I just didn't really have the technology back then, but... Moses here is gazing upon where God's glory has been. And when he comes down from the mountain, his, his own face had been transfigured and was shining as bright as the sun. To the point that the Israelites were like, please cover your face, we can't look at you. And so Moses puts a veil over. And this is a confusing kind of passage until we understand what God is really saying. Is when I enter history, God speaking, when I enter history and I intervene in what's going on, even when you don't understand, even at all of those times, it says you can only comprehend the effects of God's intervention in retrospect. You can see my back. You can see where I've been. And isn't life so much like that? That you live your life and there's so many times where it's frustrating because you don't know what's going on. And you fight against that and God says, 
but you will be able to see where I've been in your life. You will be able to see my back. And so to, to go down the mountain, to experience dying before you die so that you can live long before you physically die, you have to have the courage to not know. These are the four decisions that you're going to have to make. To have the courage to go down the mountain, the courage to give, the courage to go, the courage to stay, and the courage to not know. But you know where I get hung up in this process of descending? And where I think many Christians get hung up in this process of descending, of following Jesus, of denying yourself, picking up your cross and following Him. You know where you get stuck? Right there. Where you're neither up nor down. Where you've experienced in some way and in different ways, we've probably all experienced the glory of God, His ultimate sovereignty, His infinite holiness on wondrous display in physical form. We've seen that in Jesus in some way, maybe not in those words, but we've seen that and we've decided to follow Him and we've started walking down and our lives have gotten better. And we stop somewhere when our lives start to get better. And we're not really even fully living yet because we haven't decided to follow Him all the way to the cross. Yes, He has died so that you don't have to in one sense. But to rise from the dead, to truly live, requires dying. And you can do that before you die. Coming back to this image of Moses seeing the effects of God's glory and veiling his face so that others don't have to see it. The Apostle Paul almost talks about that moment in a really sad way. Because Moses had veiled what the people needed to see the most. And it's not all about you. You see, the transfiguration story of Jesus is a glimpse of seeing Jesus in His full glory that we will one day see. But it's also a glimpse of your own transfiguration. And so the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. You, with an unveiled face, are revealing the glory of God. And the way that you do that is through your own transformation. I pray that however God invites you to respond into that transformation, that He will also give you the courage give, to go, to stay, to not know. Will you pray with me? Father, we cannot live except by every word that comes from your mouth. You have the words of eternal life. And Lord, we need the courage to see it through. To be able to sing, love, 
so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I pray that you would give us that courage in Jesus' name. Amen.